0: Now say now you're tuned into the Wake Up and Win podcast, and I am your host Devon Pouncy. We are here in the city of Portland, Oregon, at the Momentum Studios. Spencer Shea is in it's studio a beautiful with day. me. Day,
1: I'm in the stew, baby. What's a-
0: up? Absolutely, glad to have you back. Per usual, be in here. Um, we also have a special guest who we will announce here shortly. But before we announce our special guest who will be joining us here today, some quick announcements must be made. Uh, starting off with. I joined the i5 Corridor podcast yesterday. It was a really fun interview, a cool conversation with Tyson Alger, who's a local sports writer here in the market. Tyson and I go back. Um, you know, he's been around for a good amount of my journey in, in the media, you know, field, of sports media in particular here in the city of Portland. Tyson's also been on this podcast several times. Tyson and I also used to co-host a podcast together along with Danny Moran, who is also a former sports writer at the Oregonian. It was called the three on two podcast. Once I had gotten laid off from radio, uh, Tyson (laughs) was a writer covering the ducks for the Oregonian and, Danny was covering the Oregon State Beavers for the Oregonian, and they brought me on, and we hosted this podcast together uh, for Oregon Live. So it, it was it was good times, yeah, man. I good just, times. I just heard it, bro. Oh, you did.
1: Oh yeah, you did. Of yeah, course, it was... man. You know I got to stay up. Huh? <laughs> yeah, it was Staying. definitely. Shout out Tyson. It was a nice little episode. I was uh driving around. I heard it. Go check it out, I-5 Corridor. I-5 Corridor.
0: It was a a fun conversation. Like I said, you just kind of got to hear a little bit more about my journey from a lens that's different than you may hear here on the Wake Up and Win podcast when I kind of talk about my journey in context to whatever topic it is I'm talking about, but... I guess this time I was sort of the subject matter. <laughs> so you can just kind of hear me a little bit more in depth in my journey. Not the and first time you've been, been like...
1: profiled, I'm sure. No, but not the first time, but, but,
0: but I do this weekly. <laughs> I do this podcast weekly. So when I speak about, you know, my journey or things that are going on in my career, so on and so forth, I'm usually talking to it in the context of whatever topic it is we're talking about. So I'm definitely not being profiled weekly. So this is kind of just a cool time for people to go hear me be profiled, essentially, um, if they haven't before or because it just doesn't happen as often as you'll hear me, obviously, here on this Wake Up and Win podcast. So go ahead and check that out anywhere you listen to podcasts, the I-5 Corridor. Again, it was a fun conversation. We also got to talk about... GP two, We got to talk about, you know, the work I'm doing over at Portland State. We talked about the work I'm doing with Street Roots. So it was just a fun conversation to have. Also, um, games are on the horizon. I have a game tonight. None of you will hear this podcast prior to me going to call this game against Southern Utah here tonight, but I will be at the Viking Pavilion 7 b.m. tip-off right after I'm done here recording this episode. So you know it, it is what it is. Life goes how it goes. Gotta stay busy and uh, looking forward to that call on ESPN Plus tonight. Also this Saturday we'll be on the call Spencer yeah. um, for the Pacific men's game against George Fox. The women won't be playing this weekend. Um, that game has been postponed to February 15th, so it will only be a men's game. Usually those uh, Northwest Conference games are doubleheaders, but it'll only be men's this weekend, so a 6 p.m. tip-off there. And then Monday I'll be back on ESPN Plus for Portland State at the Viking Pavilion as they face off. Against Northern Colorado,
1: so professional game spitter. It's only Hashtag right, professional game
0: spitter. <laughs> it's only right. But now I want to introduce our guest here, and it's a guest many of you are familiar with. Um, he's been on here before, and he always breaks things down to a T in ways that we love to hear. He's a wealth of knowledge. He is a political scientist himself. He is my former professor. He is a writer. He is an activist. There's so many things that I could say about this guy because he's the GOAT as far as I'm concerned. Dr. Jules Boykoff, glad to have you back, man.
2: Oh, Devon, it's my great pleasure, and thank you for that super generous introduction. I appreciate
0: that. <laughs> Absolutely, man. You know, I, I hold you in high regard, Dr. Boykoff, and, and many of the listeners do as well. Every time you come on here, people just learn so much because, you know, you do fascinating work. Um, you're a political scientist, so you're very, very fact-based with the work that you do, unless we specify otherwise, because I, I respect your opinion, so, I like to kind of get your opinion on things, and people will catch that as they listen, as they listen to the remainder of this episode. I like when Jules kind of throws his opinion out there because the political scientists in you you know you stick to the facts usually, but you you've got some interesting opinions Jules you got some interesting opinions
2: <laughs> well, we'll see I'm looking forward to the conversation today. thank you
0: absolutely absolutely. well, for starters, um I gotta talk about this Montana state play-by-play personality who was fired from Montana State. Um, His name was Mark Martello. And essentially, Portland State women's basketball. Now, I call games for the Portland State's men's basketball team, but for the Portland State's women's basketball team, they were playing down in Bozeman, Montana, against Montana State's women's basketball team. And this guy, Mark Martello, just had some out-of-pocket commentary essentially um first there was a player that plays for portland state her name and and i I hope i'm not saying this incorrectly her name is rima Ogale, and during the fourth quarter of that game uh martello was speaking about Ogale and the fact that She was from Chicago. He claimed she was from the south side of Chicago because the high school she attended, he assumed, was in the south side of Chicago, even though more has come out that it was on the west side of Chicago. But essentially, he connected the fact that the city of Portland and its rising crime rate is... Pretty much similar to Southside Chicago, which has been notoriously known for having high crime, so on and so forth. Now, why that had anything to do with this particular player, I have no idea. But as we as we speak more about what this guy came out and said, you'll understand that I think he had an agenda that was a little bit deeper than just speaking about that particular player. um, As he actually feel some type of way about the city of Portland. So he also made a comment and, and I'll read the quote here because the, the Montana state Bobcats were up by 19. A referee didn't call the foul. And he says, evidently cats are up 19. Portland can get away with whatever they're going to get away with. Portland's like Antifa after a riot. They might go to jail, but they get out right away. They can get away with it. So, Obviously, when you hear the commentary there and you hear the commentary that he made about Ogilvy and her being from South Side of Chicago, which uh, obviously we poked a hole in that one already. Her school was on the West Side of Chicago. It was St. Ignatius out there in Illinois. You could clearly hear that this guy feels some type of way because of his thoughts on what's going on here in the city of Portland. Now, Jules. I've spoken with you a little bit about this. I'll share my feelings on this, obviously, as a Big Sky commentator myself, but I'd like to toss it to you first. Just what are some of your general thoughts as you read up on some of these articles and you just kind of heard some of the nasty commentary, especially as somebody that also knows a lot about Antifa being here in Portland. You've been out to these uprisings, you know, during 2020 and so on and so forth. Just kind of share some of your general thoughts about it.
2: Sure. Well, let's start with the fact that he was just unrepentant in his racism-laced comments. I mean, that's kind of what's ghosting behind his comments there, for starters, making a comment about the South Side. So, you know, that's obviously extremely, extremely wrong, and that's really what came around to bite him in the ass, if we're going to be honest. It really wasn't what he said about Antifa. I think it's much more common to bash Antifa in in the public sphere. He probably could have gotten away with that one. You know, here's the thing. Antifa stands for anti-fascist, and so Antifa include includes a wide range of activities. Let's not forget that back in 2017, in Charlottesville, something I know I've heard you talk a lot about, Devon, over the years, back when there was the white nationalist, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, where somebody actually died. Heather Heyer got hit by a car and died. Reverend uh, Dr. Reverend Cornell West was there and he was surrounded by white nationalists until antifa came along anti-fascists came along and anarchists came along and he attributes the fact that he's alive to antifa and so we need not forget that you know for starters if you're antifa you're anti fascist and i'm just kind of tired to be honest of people bashing antifa in this sort of lazy uninformed way in the public sphere and i think that probably needs to stop
0: Absolutely. And it's interesting because you and I were together one weekend. I think this was 2017. And there was like a Proud Boys rally out here in in Portland. And I was working at Street Roots at the time. And the Proud Boys had planned and did show up in front of Street Roots to... Obviously antagonized, you know, a lot of what we stood for at Street Roots um, because we we obviously don't necessarily align with the Proud Boys and what they stand for. And Antifa showed up in numbers in our defense, in defense of the organization. Um, they respect the organization. They stayed in constant communication with us about, you know, where the Proud Boys were, and you know, as they kind of were getting closer and closing in on Street Roots. And this doesn't even mention the fact that our acknowledge the fact that they were, you know, leading up to that particular protest that the Proud Boys were having, they had some violent commentary that they spoke of in regards to what the potential outcome could be at this particular protest. So I hold Antifa in a completely different light. And I want to make sure that, you know, obviously, as we speak to Antifa, that I acknowledge, you know, and I want to send my best wishes to Rima Ogale for the fact that she even had to deal with this type of commentary, just going out there and doing what she loves. And again, I'll speak more to that here shortly. But with the Antifa piece, it's just interesting to see how kind of easy you can tell maybe what particular media platforms yeah. people are consuming based on the commentary that they have about Antifa that, again, is... Misinformation, essentially.
1: Well, can I can I ask you guys a question? Like this, Mark Martello guy, he clearly was using this coded language that you know uh um we, we already discussed. But you guys both work in the media space. My question is like, why does this guy feel? Because he even mentioned it in the comments, saying at the end of his little rants or whatever, he was like, "Oh, I shouldn't have said that." I, I, you know. So he, clearly he was aware of the fact that what he was saying was wrong. But my question is, is, like, in those media spaces, what are, like, the the signifiers or, like, the the the, the clues that these people get that they feel like this is a space that I can, like, talk this way? You know what I'm saying? And, like, push yeah, forward this, like, this, like, this narrative. And, and, and just, like, and also just, like, illuminate this, like, code, this language that is used on this right wing, you know what I'm saying? Like ideology. Why does this guy feel like, okay, here at this Montana state basketball broadcast, I can like insert these coded, you know, pieces of language. Like, you know what I'm saying? I don't Jones, know. would you like to speak to that?
2: Sure. I mean, I think if you give a guy and let's be honest, a, a privileged white guy, a microphone for a long period of time, they're going to probably eventually tell you who they are. And I think that's probably what we just heard here, who this guy actually is, who he, the way he thinks about things, the media that he's weaned on, the structure's permission for that kind of racism, uh, for that kind of ignorance when it comes to the history of anti-fascism in the United States. I mean, that's kind of my take on it. The fact that he got caught out is you know, a lesson for a lot of us. Hopefully having conversations about it can get people a little bit more educa- educated on the basics that we're talking about here. But you know, I think that's just kind of what it is. I mean, look, for a long time, white people, white men in particular, my people, if I'm going to be honest, have had a free for all. They can say almost whatever they want. You can say whatever you wish about cancel culture, but rarely is it a white guy who loses his job because of something racist or stupid that he says. And so, you know, it's actually kind of strange almost to see it happening right in front of our eyes. A white guy have being held accountable for the comments that he made that were hurtful, stupid and harmful.
0: Absolutely. And and, 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 and let me let me just let me just hop in, because to piggyback off of what you're saying, I am a Big Sky commentator myself, and I don't have any numbers or statistics per se of what Big Sky, what the percentages of like, you know, the majority race of commentators are. But I will tell you this. Hardly ever do I see any black commentators in that particular conference. And I don't. Think it's just a big sky conference issue. I think it's a larger issue when it comes to the media, the hiring practices of the media. we spoke about this on the podcast before, even with Damian Lillard, and how strategic he is in regards to what media he tends to engage with and speak with in depth, because there is a lack of trust there when you have a, a, a white dominant, a white male dominant media base. You are going to get things framed a particular way that probably identifies more so with what the majority base is that's getting hired and doing these jobs. So while, yes, you know, people try to maybe walk on eggshells and people try to say, you know, what's right or what's wrong, or they attempt to do the right thing in particular as they do this job. And there's things that you should and shouldn't say. Clearly, he said some things that he shouldn't have said on the broadcast again People get more comfortable when they know that my likelihood of being able to get this job whether it's keeping the job obviously he wasn't able to or being able to go and get another job is much higher than if I would have went on there as a black man and said some stuff that I clearly wasn't supposed to say about student athletes or any other social issues that are going out in the world so it kind of gives them a little bit more confidence to go and say what they really feel over time and as you mentioned eventually that will get exposed Jules because it's hard to hide that when you have a microphone in front of your face as often as many of these people do, because they're the ones giving the microphones.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was just also just extraordinarily lazy commentary on top of everything. Yeah. It
1: wasn't good. Yeah. He wasn't even. Yeah. Splitting. Yeah. There, it wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> funny. It wasn't witty. There was no real substance to it, but that's what I'm asking. Like, I mean, you like you, you hit the nail on the head, Devon, like, if you pull that same shit, it's over for you. We know that much to be sure. But even in his comments at the end of it, because I'm pretty sure afterwards when he was, you know, asked about, you know, sort of the aftermath, he was like, oh, I'm not going to make an apology because nothing was hurt or nobody was hurt. And then I think before that he said, I'm going to miss the coaches and the players and, you know, I'm saying my coworkers and stuff. And to me, like what I read from that is like, Oh, you you know that the relationships that you have with these people and with this with this entity that has fired you. Let's be honest, only because you got caught. I mean, you're well, it's naturally pretty, it's a pretty cast. easy place right, to right, get right. caught. But it's, it's like, like, ESPN you know, but Plus, but, I mean, but... Like, it just it, it, it just it's interesting to me that it's like, bro, you don't even realize like, like like you don't consider that your career being hurt. Like maybe you're the one that's hurt from that. It just says to me that he, he there's no. Like even losing your job is not enough punishment for the dude because if you don't feel like you've lost anything and there's anything for you to learn, then there's no lesson there's you know what I'm saying? There's no lesson that's learned there.
0: Well, I I I mean, I guess for me to speak to it, and I obviously can't speak for Mark Martello, because clearly we're two totally different guys. Let's but, get him on the again, podcast.
1: Give him a call, man. Let's absolutely just, not. But
0: <laughs> I know you're joking. But 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 even with that, clearly Like I said, there was a comfortability aspect there that we just, that just maybe he would be able to get away with it. And I think if it wasn't for other people speaking up, about some of the nastiness of the things that he said, even when he said oops on the broadcast or the airwaves because he said what he said. Maybe even in that moment, he didn't feel he was going to get fired, but he knew that he said something that was pretty risky, but he didn't know, as Jules mentioned, that he was actually going to lose the job because it doesn't happen as often as people think, especially today because of this cancel culture uh, zeitgeist that we kind of live in it doesn't quite happen as often as people actually think. So maybe he did feel like he'd get away with one, but I think it was other people speaking out, obviously reaching out to Montana state's athletic department, like basically saying, Hey, this is not okay. Okay. And they were pushed to have to make a decision and let him go. And I think initially he was only let go for the remainder of this season. So he would have been able to probably get a job again after that. But when he made the statements that he made to the local publication via text messages, that's when I think, you know, everything went haywire and they would look particularly bad to ever hire this guy again rather than just suspending him for the rest of the season ultimately.
1: Jules, you got anything?
2: No, I think you just nailed nailed it on the head there, Devon.
1: Well, so you guys are basically saying that the only – real way to enact some sort of like substantial change or at least like intern I don't know internally is for people who are in the media spaces to just go and, and like talk about it and, and attack, attack I, I don't think guy, it's just but,
0: me. I don't think it's just people in the media spaces I just think it's people in general it wasn't necessarily other media that had to reach out to the Montana State Athletic Department about it. It could be anybody just listening to the broadcast sure. because the broadcast was on ESPN plus. But again, oftentimes it's similar to if we want to take it to an even an even deeper social example, Ahmad Arbery. It wasn't until people caught wind of what actually happened with Ahmad Arbery and and came up and said things and obviously hit the streets and protested and, and, and rose up in his defense that we saw his case not only get as much notoriety as it got, but that's when we saw the guys that killed him get arrested. Obviously, recently they've been sentenced, so on and so forth, but there is a gap between... You know, when he was killed in February of that year and, you know, maybe like early May when it finally started to get attention from other entities that that almost got swept under the rug. And if it wasn't for people speaking up and speaking out against this particular thing, i.e., which is something Antifa tends to do, it might have just gotten swept under the rug because that's commonly what actually happens. So. Again, I I, I want to just send my well wishes uh, to Rima Ogle first and foremost, because I, I can only feel for the fact that she's going out there playing ball, doing what she loves. And this is the commentary that has to come out about her, about, you know, her, her city that she's come from and grew up in, which I'm sure there's an obvious connection to if that's where you grew up. And again, her school was on the west side of Chicago, not the south side of Chicago. But because of him you know, misinforming us about where her school was located as he spoke about St. Ignatius Prep. It more so spoke to the narrative that he was intending to speak to rather than the facts that, you know, obviously exist out here in the world. And you probably just can look up the school on the Internet to find out where that place is geographically located out in Chicago, Illinois. So, uh, you know, it's something that as a black man myself in this space, in the media space, in the media industry, again, that doesn't look like me hardly at all. It it really always, you know, it doesn't make me grateful that I'm able to be a representative in this space, but it allows me to, it, it reminds me that me being the representation of the people, the background that I represent, there's not many around me that feel the same and represent the same way. So I don't do this for just me necessarily, even though it's something that I'm passionate about and I love to do. I do this for these student athletes who have to deal with this type of commentary about them when they're just going out to play basketball, because even they are being framed in ways that are just nasty and that they just really shouldn't be. And in a lot of cases, obviously, in this case, just isn't true. So, you know, there, there's a responsibility that it even comes with me in the work that I do as a big sky commentator and just as, as somebody in media at large that, These are the things that we intend to try to change for a lot of subject matters that come from particular backgrounds that don't reflect the people that are covering
2: them. Yeah, last point, if I may. That's such a great way of putting it, Devon. And thank God, first of all, you're in this field. Second of all, that you're willing to stand up on all these issues. It shouldn't just be on your shoulders to do that as like one of the few black faces in the industry the in the conference. But, you know, you mentioned nasty framing. And I did want to just kind of swivel back one last time, because when you were talking about what Rose City Antifa did, the the group here in Portland Antifa group and how they help people at Street Roots stay safe when you had this marauding band of right wingers in town kind of looking for trouble right in front of Street Roots. You know, that the Rose City Antifa gets a lot of flack from people like this guy, uh, Martello, but and others, for being out in the streets and challenging police and standing up to police and that kind of thing. That's only a portion of what anti-fascist groups do. In fact, Antifa, Rose City Antifa, is like a serious research outfit, and they're basically in the weeds of the internet trying to find information out about harmful right-wing activity and trying to illuminate it for the public good and actually i could see some group like rose city antifa coming across this kind of comment from the commentator from montana and lifting it up so people understand when you have coded racism slash just straight up racism in your face that the world should probably know about and so that's just one more misconception around anti-fascist activity that is just there in the streets for protest yes they are But they're also doing the serious work of research and trying to illuminate for the public people that really deserve to be illuminated for their negative activities.
0: Absolutely, Jules. and And I greatly appreciate that context that you give there, because, again, Antifa is not <laughs> given is not put out in the greatest of light um just because people do feel like you know they they're the ones doing the damage and they're the ones rioting and they're the ones doing this and they're the ones doing that but there's there's so much more nuance to what it is that they actually do and again as somebody who has had direct interactions with Antifa I don't quite get what the narrative is the negative narrative of course is out there about them because I've been able to just have a firsthand experience with Rose city Antifa. As you speak, that's just completely different of what's being shown, you know, on particular platforms that's leading to guys like Martello making the comments that, that he assumes are correct comments, but, but clearly they aren't. But Jules, I want to, I want to transition a bit here because it's winter Olympics time. And, (laughs) and first off, I want to just kind of ask a basic general question again. I told you earlier, I want to get your opinion on some things and then we'll dig into to some of, you know, your latest commentary and some pieces that you've recently written about the, the Winter Olympics. Why is it that the Winter Olympics or do you know of any trends as to why the Winter Olympics doesn't get the same coverage as we see the Summer Olympics get? Is there any trends that you've noticed over the research that you've done, or is it just is what it is?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't get as much interest in the public and then media coverage as well. Uh, For starters, it's smaller. I mean, there's around 3,000 athletes compared to the Summer Olympics, that is more like 11,000 athletes. So there's just fewer people. And along with that, there's fewer countries also. So less of the world is represented at the Winter Olympics compared to the Summer Olympics. You know, and so those are two like really important factors. The third is when it comes to the Summer Olympics, people might wonder why are they in the hottest months of the summer in July and August? That seems kind of stupid that's because NBC, which gives the International Olympic Committee around 40% of its revenues, that's because NBC knows that in its schedule there's a nice pocket right there where there's not a lot of other sports happening in July and August. That is not the case in February. We're going to have the Super Bowl right in the middle of the Olympics. So there's other sports at work that are sucking up a lot of the media oxygen, which leaves less for the athletes from the Olympic Games.
0: That was great context. Now, I want to speak to the piece that you wrote here in The Guardian. And basically, you know, the, the headline was The Beijing Olympics are tearing down the IOC's oldest myth that sports are apolitical. Can you just kind of give some basic background on, on what that headline headline meant and just some of the things that you spoke about, um, which is again, something that you've covered for, for quite a long time, but it just doesn't necessarily stick for folks because people do try to kind of have this stick to sports lens when it comes to not just Olympics, but any sports, but it's just, it's just non-existent, non-existent, honestly.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think a good place to start is the myth that is propagated by the International Olympic Committee, which is a gaggle of elites based in Lausanne, Switzerland, that makes billions of dollars off of the Olympic Games. It's a nonprofit organization that is extraordinarily profitable. And they kind of trade on this myth that the Olympics are not political, even though anybody who thinks about it for like three seconds realizes that's not the case. In fact, the Olympics have been political since the very beginning, when a plucky French baron named Baron Pierre de Coubertin started the Olympics way back in the 1890s, where he leaned on political plenipotentiaries, powerful people, to get the Olympics going. Now, in the contemporary era, the claim of being neutral has allowed the International Olympic Committee to say there's nothing they can do about the fact that China— who's hosting the Olympics here in a couple weeks or in a week now, actually is uh, a massive and egregious human rights violator. They say, Hey, there's nothing we can do about that. We have no influence whatsoever in that area. So, I mean, if you just look at the recent, History of the International Olympic Committee. They took credit for convincing political leaders from North and South Korea to create, quote, a unified hockey team competing under one flag at the 2018 Pyongchang Winter Olympics, the most recent ones. It also talks about how it was involved in negotiations with the Taliban to get safe passage for Af- Afghan athletes in the wake of the U.S. pullout there. And, you know, even back in 2001, When Beijing was first getting the Summer Olympics in 2008, one of the reasons it gave the Beijing bidders was that it was going to open up China, make it more democratic and honor human rights more. And the IOC pointed to that and said, yeah, that's great. Well, that's all political, of course. So they're kind of talking out both sides of, of their mouth, basically, is what I'm saying. But they're not the only ones who are engaging in hypocrisy hypocrisy abounds in pretty much every direction when it comes to the Beijing Olympics. For starters, China all of a sudden is saying, hey, the Olympics should not be political. Well, guess what? They've changed their tune. They actually boycotted the 1980 Olympics in Moscow over politics because the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan, and they didn't think that was the right thing to do. So they actually boycotted the Moscow Olympics. Now here they are saying boycotts are a bad idea. And I also pointed out in that Guardian piece that the United States has plenty of hypocrisy to go around as well. I mean, your listeners may know already, but the Biden administration has announced that it is going to do a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics, which is to say they're not going to send any diplomats to the Beijing Games as a sort of punishment for all the the egregious human rights violations that are happening. Well, China turned around, first of all, and just said, oh, you weren't even invited your diplomats in the first place. But the point is that the Biden administration's plenty hypocritical when it comes to this. I mean, look, Guantanamo Bay remains open, the prison there, where you have people who have been tortured, waterboarded. Um, it, you know, So it doesn't really hold up very well when Biden waggles a finger at China When people can say, oh, there's that, there's kids in cages, there's the humanitarian crisis in plain sight that you deal with every single day at your job, Devon, known as homelessness. Mm. And so, you know, it just rings a little bit hollow when Biden waggles a finger in the direction of China around these issues. Now, people from Human Rights Watch would say to me, there's actually an analytical difference here that I should talk about. And and they're right. There's a technical term in human rights work crimes against humanity, and technically speaking, they argue that China is actually engaged in crimes against humanity in the way they're treating uh, people in Xinjiang province, uh, Uyghur Muslims and, and Turkic Muslims there, the way they treat the Tibetans long term, and the way they've treated democracy activists in Hong Kong. That Those are crimes against humanity, according to human rights groups, whereas a lot of what I always talked about with the United States might not necessarily be categorized as such, but it's plenty bad, let me tell you. So the point is, basically... The Beijing Olympics, for starters, is a hotbed of hypocrisy, and we get to see it all right in front of us.
0: I, I love that you mentioned the U.S. politicos, essentially, and some of the hypocrisy that we have right here, obviously, for one, us being here in the United States. But but this is more so something I want to ask you based on the work that you do, um, because many people would probably view you as, like, left-leaning, and... Obviously, you know, we've got midterm elections coming up here right now. 2024 isn't that far removed where we'll have another elections. And there's obviously going to be a lot of conversation surrounding Biden, the people who vote for him, who tend to criticize him, even though they voted for him, because there's just such a huge divide here in the United States of America. But could you just sort of speak to us as citizens here in the United States holding even the people we may have voted for accountable and why that's important especially obviously you know using the example that you did here um in this particular article in the guardian
2: yeah absolutely key point i mean just because we vote uh, for president every four years doesn't mean we just relax and kick it and sort of just see what they do no you got to keep the pressure up on these folks and in biden in particular because of his background uh, he's pretty conservative Democrat, really. I mean, he's one of those people that's bent over backwards over the years to work with Republicans. And he's done plenty to to shield credit card uh, corporations from having to pay any kind of fees or, and also from how they've basically milked poor communities. He's been basically in favor of pretty much every war it, it, that's been possible here. I mean, yes, he pulled out of Afghanistan, but now Biden is sort of ramping up the rhetoric against China. You know, So that's another reason why it's important to kind of be thinking about what's happening now in the context of the Beijing Olympics. Biden just got $770 billion in his defense bill, uh, which was $24 billion more than he actually even requested And one of the main reasons that Democrats gave, and Republicans, they agree on this, is that it's China that makes it necessary for the United States to have such a massive defense bill. I mean, it is so massive, it outpaces the next 11 countries combined. And so this kind of saber-rattling, I think, is first of all dangerous because we're living in a perilous moment things are already tough enough i mean can you guys imagine if the us all of a sudden engaged in a war with china or with russia right now on top of all the stuff that we're dealing with here in the united states and it's it's really important that the united states and china cooperate on a lot of these issues and so i think we're in the middle of a demonization campaign in the united states against china that is extraordinarily dangerous It's dangerous because we're already seeing anti-Asian hate on the streets of Portland, other cities around the country. And all this talk about sort of just blind punching bag talk on China doesn't help that at all. And second, you know, there's been some polling on this that has found that negative feelings of everyday people in the United States have escalated against China. So back in 2018, Um, It was about 46% of the population in the United States that was polled thought that China was dangerous or felt negative about them. That was up last year to 67%, so up 21 points in just a few years. That is the results of a demonization campaign and an extraordinarily dangerous one at that. You know, I'm all in favor of U.S.-China cooperation on climate change and other key security matters, and all of this grandstanding uh, really doesn't help.
1: Can, Can I ask you a question, Jules? Um, and I'm excuse me if this is a dumb one, but like, what is the IOC in position to do about possibly mitigating a lot of this? Like, I don't know, like, you know, fighting bickering. I don't know what the right word is, but just, you know, the chicanery, if you will, of um the way that. China and the United States feel about their participation in the Olympics? Like what can the IOC do about this?
2: Yeah, well, the IOC, that's a great question. And the IOC committed the original sin here, which is to say back in 2015, the International Olympic Committee handed the 2022 Winter Olympics to Beijing, even though they knew full well that there were human rights abuses that were rampant in the country. Even though they knew full well that back in two thousand one when Beijing was bidding on those Olympics, they promised this human rights heyday that never arrived and in fact actually got worse over time. They still nevertheless gave these Olympics to Beijing, in which is in direct contradiction to many of the lofty principles in their own Olympic charter, by the way. Right exactly. So, I, yeah.
1: They've already they've already I mean, had set precedent.
2: Yeah. So I mean like now, yeah, I sort of like there's probably not much they can do, you know, at this point, one week before the Olympic Games. But the fact that they gave the Olympic Games to Beijing in the first place is the key factor here. Now, some mm. might say, oh, this is great, though, because it, it actually raises the profile of the issue. We wouldn't be having this podcast discussion right now were it not for the fact that Beijing uh, was hosting the Olympics. Well, tell that to the, the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province who are essentially living in a high-tech, intensely surveilled prison for their entire lives or thrown into a re-education camp. You know, it's pretty... Not not any solace for those folks that what the International Olympic Committee has decided to do. I mean, let's be straight, the International Olympic Committee is all about money. They knew they could bank on China to pull this Olympics off under difficult conditions. China has gone full on here. I mean, let's let's be straight. Like they have had, China has had. They've had the zero COVID policy. They have had 6,000 deaths from COVID since January 2020, 6,000. I mean, in the United States, we had 4,000 on Wednesday this week, okay, almost 4,000 on Wednesday. But they actually are controlling coronavirus in ways that the United States could only dream of, and they maybe can handle the Olympics better, certainly better than we could if they were in the United States. But that does not give a kind of excuse to overlook the egregious human rights violations and human suffering that's happening.
1: Well, yeah, when you put, like, into- like large swaths of your population into, like, essentially states of exception while everyone's going through a pandemic and you've isolated them and put them in prisons, I'm sure it is easy to control the spread of a virus like that. That sucks to hear. Sorry. Right, and here's
2: the <laughs> thing. Here's the thing about it. Like, you know, we, peop- we like to talk about in Olympic studies about how... You know, authoritarian countries should not be able to necessarily hold the Olympics because much of what happens there clashes with the Olympic Charter and the lofty ideals therein. Right. But, you know, one thing a lot of people miss is that supposed democracies become a lot more authoritarian when they host the Olympic Games. I'm looking at you, Los Angeles, in 2028 where they're already the police, uh, police officers and sheriffs in L.A. are already ramping up, saying we're going to need more personnel to host the Olympic Games, and where ICE is going to have free reign, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, uh, during that national special security event that the Olympics are. So, you know, it cuts both ways for authoritarian powers, but democracies become a lot more authoritarian when they host the Olympics as well.
0: Damn. I want to also talk about this piece that you wrote, you co wrote with uh, Dave Zirin for The Nation about a quasi frimpong and their struggle to represent Africa at the Winter Olympics. Can you just speak about who a quasi frimpong is and why this story is so interesting, fascinating, but also, you know, it's a tough deal because he's not able to represent Africa at the Winter Olympics?
2: Yeah, I mean, Akwasi Frimpong is an amazing human being, and he has not lived an easy life, but it's been a remarkable one. He, he grew up in Ghana in total poverty, living in a 13-by-13-foot 13 13 room with his eight siblings and his cousins. He was raised by his grandmother. He moved to the Netherlands at a very young age. He was only eight at that time. He emigrated without papers, undocumented, to the Netherlands to, to live with his mother and his brother He experienced racism. He's black from Ghana. He experienced a lot of racism in the Netherlands, but he's continued to keep fighting for what he wanted to achieve, which was become a track star. It turns out he's really fast uh, had a really fast runner. He became the country's 200-meter sprinting champion, but because he wasn't a Dutch citizen, he couldn't really go much further. So finally, uh, the Netherlands did grant him official residency, and he was training to try to get into the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. Unfortunately, his Olympics dreams were shattered when he ruptured his Achilles tendon, but he kind of just, this guy, you can't stop this guy. So what he does is he moves to Utah where he goes to college and he's doing like a marketing and business management degree. And the Netherlands comes through their national bobsled team to train in Utah there. And he gives it a go. And turns out, you know, this guy's an incredible athlete. And he's smart, too. He can pick these things up really fast. So next thing you know, he's doing these sliding sports. And he gets really into this event called Skeleton, which for your listeners that don't know what that is, is basically getting on a sled face first and zinging down one of those ice tubes really fast. Extraordinarily dangerous sport. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's horrifying. I mean, it just sounds so scary to me. But anyways, in 2018, he managed to get into the Pyeongchang Olympics. And he performed well, but he didn't do nearly as well as he wanted to do. And he set his sights on Beijing. And to get into Beijing, you need to be in the top 60 ranked skeleton athletes. And he was at 65 going into this tournament in Germany and at that tournament in germany unfortunately he tests positive for coronavirus so he wasn't able to compete and thus get into the top 60 and make his way to beijing however the International Olympic Committee has this sort of little secret weapon, if you will, at, at its disposal, where it can give slots to people from countries that aren't really very strongly represented at the games. And so they could have just said, OK, you know, that's bad luck. You've improved a ton. You came from like 99th in the world to like 65th. I mean, that's a huge improvement. They could have said, yeah, you know what? And you're a good guy. We'll let you in. But instead, they said, nah. Suck it, buddy. You're, you can't come into the Olympics and your Olympic dreams shatter. Now, he's taken it really well. He's gone through every channel possible. It's just not going to happen. But, you know, he's just a real positive spirit. and Just one of those people that I look to for inspiration and kind of how to lead my life because he's just like got, got his head up and he's going to move on to the next challenge in life. So amazing guy. Would have loved to have seen him in the Olympics, but just wasn't to be.
0: Why, why do you think the IOC isn't allowing him to get one of those spots that you speak of?
2: Well, you know, they said a rule is a rule. They said they came to an agreement with the International Federation that oversees skeleton sports. But the fact of the matter is they change their rules all the time. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that the International Olympic Committee used to give out the Olympics seven years in advance. Well, now they just started you know, giving it out 11 years in advance to whatever city they can get on the hook. So my point is they changed the rules all the time. They could have changed the rules to allow a crossy friend to participate, and they just didn't do it. Now, part of it might be, honestly, this is getting into conspiracy theories, but like... Oh, yeah.
0: I not, like I like conspiracy jewels. <laughs> there's,
2: there's no evidence for this like that I've seen, but, you know, hey, there, people are saying this. Look, Akwasi Fremkong has been really outspoken about anti-black racism. Huh. He's a person who's been involved in the, the, the progressive athlete group called Global Athlete, which has been standing up for the rights of Olympians in fact he's an ambassador for global athlete a group that i think your listeners would really appreciate knowing about it's a, a collective of olympians and other people that are aspiring olympians former olympians who and, and people that are just high level athletes that are coming together to fight for athlete rights thinking about athletes as athlete workers and he's part of that group so you know there's been some murmurings and i haven't again seen substantiation like facts for it but that he was excluded because of his strong political stance against anti-black racism and for the rights of working athletes. And,
1: and as we know, the Olympics is strictly apolitical, as we well know. So. <laughs>
2: That's right, Spencer. Don't forget it. I,
0: I never will. <laughs> well, well, Jules, we're going to leave it here for this particular episode. This will be releasing tomorrow on Friday. But we got a little more that we need to get from you because uh, – there's something, you are being surveilled, essentially, by the LAPD, and I I I want to learn a little bit more about this, and obviously, we know that the LAPD certainly does not have the greatest of backgrounds when it comes to being straight up and down, and the greatest citizens here in the United States, here to protect and serve, and do all the little fancy slogans that go along with being the police, Um but... I want to get us into some Patreon content here. So we'll leave it here for this episode. And for those of you that want to hear more and trust me, you're going to want to hear more. We'll have this next episode here on Patreon. So on that note, we're going to leave y'all the only way that we know how, and that is to stay woke and go win.